Ruth chapter 3. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, who, with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman has come to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Right, yeah, well, let's um, pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is a light to our paths, and uh, Father, that uh, uh, through your word that you nourish us, that uh, you guide us, you direct us. We pray for the children next door as uh, they're led in Sunday school that uh, the gospel of Jesus would be planted firmly in their minds and their hearts and bear great fruit. And we pray the same for ourselves as we come to consider your word today. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. I know of parents who think that they would make a better choice of spouse for their kids than their kids would. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the wisdom of years, the, uh, the ability to uh, assess character, uh, the ability to, uh, to, to know what kind of personality would make a good match, 
the uh, foresight to see where certain personality issues and character issues can, uh, can end up later on down in life. Uh, these are all reasons why uh, some parents believe that they would make uh, better choices for their uh, kids than their kids would. I wonder how the young people of our church feel about that. Well, I uh, had the opportunity to survey a few at youth group the other night, uh, some of the young ladies in uh, the uh, church, and I asked them uh, what they thought about that uh, proposition that their parents should be in a better position to assess their character, the, the, to assess, to choose a partner for them than they would, and uh, they weren't too keen on the idea. Um, but uh, you know what? Um, they had good reasons. Uh, it wasn't just that, no, we just wouldn't trust our parents, although that might be true, I don't know, they didn't raise that matter, but they, there were some good reasons they gave. For example, they said that a young man might be very impressive around a girl's parents. He might be very polite, he might be very well-mannered, he might be very decent, but the girls actually see how he relates to other people, how he relates under normal circumstances when the parents of the girl that he's interested in aren't around. And they might know, well, maybe he's actually not such a good choice. I thought, well, that's, uh, that's good thinking. I hadn't thought of that before. And uh, good on the girls in our uh, youth group. You know, in other cultures around the world, parents and families play a much larger part in the selection of a spouse than what they do in our Western culture. I remember once having a conversation with a Middle Eastern couple and I asked them about their courtship. I asked them how they got married. And uh, the, uh, the fellow said, well, I was walking through the village one day and I saw a girl that she kind of appealed to me and I went home and I told my father and he said, yes, well, she comes from a good family. And so uh, uh, the two families got together. Uh, they discussed the matter. A... An agreement was made, a dowry price was set, and the wedding happened. And I, I said to him, but um, how could you do that? I mean, you barely knew each other. Uh, you didn't even love one another. Uh, how could you get married? But then they said, well, that's right. Uh, we didn't love each other when we got married, but we grew to love each other over time. Now, of course... Uh, doesn't always work out that well, does it? Uh, you know, occasionally we hear some horror stories uh, from that kind of scenario, but not with this couple. When I had that conversation with them, they were not newlyweds. Uh, they had been married for 50 years. They were elderly and a more loving, in love with one another couple uh, you couldn't find. You know, in Ruth chapter 3, we read about a marriage which was hatched not by the parents but by the mother-in-law of this young widow, Ruth. I don't know what she thought uh, when the passage was read to us earlier, but it seems to me that to modern Australian ears, when we hear this passage read, there's yeah, somewhat of a hint of scandal uh, in the passage. Did you... I'm not sure if you thought that or not. And that's mostly because of the issue that you can't avoid, and that is what actually happened between... Boaz and Ruth, that night, on the threshing floor. Have you got your interest? 
All right, let's explore, shall we? If you open up your Bibles at Ruth chapter 3, the plan is hatched in the first six verses. Now, last week we saw that the young widow, uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, uh, had uh, gone back with her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, to Israel, to Bethlehem, and that she was uh, gleaning barley from the farm of a farmer by the name of Boaz. Um, the, the law of God said that uh, a farmer must allow poor people onto his property so that they can go and pick up the scraps that the harvesters, harvesters left behind. And Boaz was very happy for that to happen. But the great news at the end of the story last week in chapter 2 was that when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law Naomi and told her where she'd been gleaning that day, uh, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for Naomi because Naomi uh, realised that it turns out that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for their family. Now, do you remember what a kinsman redeemer was? Some of you might. Let me recap for you. A kinsman redeemer... He was a family member, he was a relative, and if a man who was married died without a son, then, uh, then, then, then um, sorry, if a man was, became poor, rather, if a man became poor and he had to sell some land in order to uh, pay his bills, then the kinsman redeemer... Uh, had the opportunity to purchase the land in order to keep the land within the family. Uh, in fact, if uh, land was sold to someone outside of the family, a kinsman redeemer had the opportunity or indeed had the right to go and purchase the land back. And so uh, in all of that, uh, the land uh, kept within the family because the land, as you remember, was God's land. The land was God's gift. And we saw last week how that concept of the kinsman redeemer is fulfilled in Jesus, in the sense that Jesus has paid a price to redeem us uh, from uh, slavery to sin. But there was something else which was at play in the culture. And that was the idea of... Do you remember a couple of weeks ago I mentioned a thing called the Leverite marriage? Does anyone remember that? No? Okay. I better recap that one as well. The Leverite marriage, or perhaps a better name for it, would be the brother-in-law marriage. Right? Now, this is the, this is the idea that uh, if a man died, who was, a man who was married died, and he had no son then it was the responsibility of his brother to marry his widow uh, in the hope that the two of them would have a son and if they had a son, the firstborn son would be considered in law to be the son of the deceased brother. Does that make sense? And uh, because... Family trees and so on are very important in, uh, in the Old Testament culture. What that meant was that uh, uh, in the deceased man's family tree, 
that his branch would not end because of that firstborn son who would now be considered to be his son and his family line would continue. Now, what if a man actually did not want to marry his deceased brother's widow? You can imagine that situation happening, can't you? Uh, well, the, um, the law actually said that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if he did not want to marry the widow of his deceased brother, then he didn't have to, but there was a price to pay, uh, and that is that the widow could go to the elders of the town and report the matter that he had refused to marry her and then if the elders of the town could not persuade him to change his mind, then the woman could approach him uh, in the presence of the elders and she was, to, uh, she was to rip the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And from then on, uh, his family would be known as the family of the unsandaled. That's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25. So the idea is that uh, you know, he was dishonouring his brother by not marrying the widow and carrying on the family line. So she would dishonour him you know, in full view of the elders of the town. And you can imagine you know, if you're a guy and your brother starts to take an interest in a girl you would take some interest in the girl that he was thinking of possibly marrying because of the event, possible eventuality that, that could, she could end up being your wife. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And what, what's happening here is that there are two cultural concepts. There's the cultural concept of the kinsman redeemer. That's got to do with the land. And there is the, con, the cultural concept of the... Uh, brother-in-law marriage. That's got to do with marrying the widow of the deceased uh, brother. In the book of Ruth, these two concepts intersect with one another. And the reason is this. Uh, if a kinsman redeemer purchased the land of a man who was deceased and who had no son to pass the land on to, then the uh, concept of the brother-in-law marriage would then extend to the kinsman redeemer so that he would marry the widow. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, it is so that if then the, the, the new couple had a firstborn son, then that son, according to the brother-in-law marriage concept, that son would be considered to be the son of the deceased man, um, but also that son would therefore also inherit the land. And that's the kinsman-redeemer concept coming to play. So that the, the son and his descendants and the land would stay in the family line of the deceased man. Now, does that make any sense? 
Let me bottom line it for you. It's a package deal. The land and the woman come together because of those, the intersection of those two concepts, the kinsman redeemer and the brother-in-law marriage. And this is kind of the stuff that's spinning around in Naomi's head in verses 1 to 6. This is, this is her plan. And so, and so in verse 2, she plans a rendezvous. Uh, Naomi tells Ruth that, uh, that Boaz, uh, after, the, after the day of harvesting, that he would be winnowing the barley. You know what winnowing is? That's when you kind of toss the barley up into the air and there's a bit of a breeze comes along and the breeze blows the chaff, but the, the, but the actual... Um, uh, the barley itself falls to the grain falls to the ground, so that's winnowing, and so they'd be winnowing at the end of the day on the threshing floor, and uh, that Boaz would, you know, be feasting. He'd have some good food, and he'll have some good drink, and then he'll want to go to sleep. And uh, so what Naomi says to Ruth in verses one to six is that Ruth is then to get all doled up. Go and have a wash, um, splash some perfume on, um, put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. Go to the farm, go to the threshing floor and then when Boaz is asleep in verse 4, she was to uncover his feet because he'd have his blanket or his cloak or something or other covering his body, uncover his feet and lie there, lie at his feet. Uh, and in verse 7, that's exactly what she, does, what she does. Now, what's going on here? I mean, uh, that, this is the bit that kind of sounds like this, there might be some immorality happening, you know, as if the, uh, the author is not telling us everything that went on on the threshing floor that night. Is that what's going on? Uh, no, it's not what's going on. Uh, in the culture, um, to get doled up like that, is the way a woman would get doled up for her marriage. And in that culture, what she's doing is this is, an actu- this is actually an invitation uh, from Ruth to Boaz for Boaz to take up the, the brother-in-law marriage concept on the basis that he is a kinsman redeemer. Basically, she's proposing to him. Take a look at verse 9. Because when Boaz wakes up in the dark, something startled him. Uh, and then he got even more startled because he found at his feet that there was a woman lying there. He can't see who she is. And so in verse 9, he says, um, Who are you? And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Notice she's changed her description of herself uh, in the previous chapter. She wasn't one of his servants. She was just a a widow gleaning on the fields. But now she's saying, well, I am your servant, Ruth. And then she said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. And that's the critical phrase, since you are a kinsman redeemer. And part of the concept of being a kinsman redeemer was to be a protector 
of the family, to be a protector of the family assets, to be a protector of the family. And for her to ask Boaz to spread his garment over her, that's not an invitation for sex. Uh, That is an invitation for him to act as the protector, uh, as the coverer. And we saw last week how Ruth had, uh, in coming to Israel, had uh, sought uh, the protection of the covering of the wings of the Lord. And we looked at that concept. This is an invitation for him to become her coverer, her protector. And Boaz understood that. We know that because in verse 12, he says, well, hang on a moment. Um, There is another man. Uh, There is another relative who is a closer kinsman redeemer to you than, than I am. And that man should have the first option of buying the land and acting as Uh, in terms of the brother-in-law marriage. Now, more on that next week. We'll see what happens. But from verse 10 onwards, you can see that uh, Boaz is pretty positive about the idea of taking up this option himself. Uh, He's kind of hoping that this other bloke is going to say no and won't act as the king's redeemer. Um, We see even here that he really does want to look after and protect Ruth. Just see how he protects Ruth in this passage. In verse 13, he asks her to stay at his feet until morning time. He would have been aware of the dangers of a young woman travelling back to town of a night time. So he says, no, look, you can stay here till till morning. Uh, In verse 14, he wants to protect her reputation. He says to her, don't let anyone know that you know, a woman has been here tonight because they'll put two and two together and come up with five. Um, so he wants to protect her reputation and he's also aware that uh, you know, in the culture that if a, if a uh, brother-in-law had sex with her before he became married to her, then he would actually forfeit that right. Um, and um, in verse 15, he provides uh, her with barley to take home to her mother-in-law, Naomi, for food. And at the beginning of this story, Naomi is described as being someone who is empty. She's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And here he's saying, well, don't return to her empty-handed. He wants to fill her in a symbolic kind of way. Now, that's the story so far. If you're a married person, I wonder um, if you remember a moment uh, in your relationship before marriage when you became more than just friends with the person who you ended up marrying. You know, the kind of, you know, you were friends, but then something happened and it turned kind of more romantic than that. Do you remember that moment if you're married? I remember the moment. Um, <clears throat> uh, Cassie and I were, um, were had been good friends for quite a number of years, five, six years or so. And one of, one of our friends was really frustrated with me 
because he could see that uh, we really liked each other. He could see that uh, uh, we were a good match and, uh, and I was really too slow, uh, keeping it kind of like just on the platonic friendship sort of level. So one day he approached me and said, look, I'm really frustrated by this. It's obvious that you two like each other and you should, you've got to do something about it, Scott. Here's two tickets to a concert at the Opera House to listen to the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. I'm giving you the two tickets. Now, follow my instructions. Ask Cassie out. And that was it. <laughs> that was the moment. Well, this is kind of one of those sort of moments for Boaz. Uh, he's, um, he's a man of, in, of integrity. He knows that there is another kinsman redeemer. He's not keeping quiet about that, but he sure is hoping that this other bloke will not take up the option. This is a, it's a game changer for him. And why? Well, because Ruth, she's a great catch. What are the qualities worth looking for in a future spouse? Our world emphasises things such as appearance, personality, common interests and so on, and they're good things. Uh, they are important things. They are factors in the equation. But what about things like relationship with God? What about things like character? Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite-S. Moabites worshipped other gods. But in coming to Israel, unlike other women such as, well, for example, Jezebel, unlike Jezebel, uh, she did not come to Israel saying, I'm going to keep on worshipping my God and I'm going to introduce my God uh, to Israel. No, uh, it was her desire to live under the lordship of Yahweh, uh, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, that's what she had said to, to uh, Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And then she invoked the name of Yahweh uh, as she was saying that. She wanted to come under the lordship of the true God, our God. And you know, this is just so important for uh, single Christians uh, who are considering marriage or considering uh, relationships, that uh, single Christians should only consider marrying somebody who shares their relationship with God, uh, someone who trusts in the gospel, someone who uh, loves the Lord Jesus and trusts Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. That's the foundation for a fruitful and a godly life together. Uh, not to be unequally yoked, not to be pulling in different directions spiritually, not to be being dragged away from God, but to be equally yoked, uh, to be with someone who, wants, who puts the Lord as first in their lives. Now, of course, if you're a Christian and you're already married to someone who doesn't, uh, share your, your faith, 
then the Bible's teaching is that you ought to be uh, working hard at being godly in that context uh, and uh, praying for and seeking to win your spouse for Christ. Uh, that's a, it's a complex issue, that's a big topic, it's a topic for another sermon. But it wasn't the case here because Ruth had a relationship with God and she had character and that impressed Boaz. You see, she had other options. She could have chased after younger, um, more attractive men and Boaz knows that. And mind you, other men would have been interested because in verse 11, Boaz makes the point that, uh, that every man in town, every man in Bethlehem knows that she is a woman of noble character uh, because uh, she, of the way that she acted, because she was a person who gave up her interests uh, in order to care for her ageing mother-in-law. Now that's attractive, isn't it? Someone who doesn't put themselves first, someone who by their actions puts others first, and in her case, her mother-in-law um, my old minister used to say to the single girls in our church, uh, he'd say, look, uh, girls, um, don't just go for the guy in the church. Might be a Christian guy, but don't just go, go for the guy who tries to impress the young ladies all the time. Uh, he'd say, look out for the young man who cares for the elderly woman in the church. He goes, guess what? When you're old and frail... That's how he'll care for you. Someone who doesn't put themselves first but puts others in front of them. Relationship with God and godly character. And uh, what I want to say to single people is that uh, if you want to attract that kind of person, you know what kind of person you've got to be? That kind of person yourself. And that's incumbent for all of us, isn't it? to be people who uh, love the Lord our God, who come under his protection and uh, who seek uh, to put others before ourselves, to be like Ruth, to be someone of character. Now let's have a look at uh, how this, this story finishes next, next week as we get on to uh, chapter 4 and uh, read about the marriage that happens between Boaz and Ruth and where that leads, and particularly where that leads in terms of the family line that leads to Jesus. But let's bow in prayer now, shall we? Father in heaven, we do thank you uh, for um, uh, the wisdom that we see in the book of Ruth. We thank you for Ruth, that she was a lady who wanted to put you first and uh, love and serve and honour you. And uh, Father, that she put others before herself. Uh, we pray for each one of us, that we would be that kind of people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.